G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Hope you can stick around because we're going to be talking about the persecuted church, but with three very special guests over this next hour. When Christian ministry organisations pass significant milestones, it's often time for reflection and celebration. One of the amazing ministries that's been raised up by God to serve the needs of the persecuted church is called Voice of the Martyrs, and they're crossing one of those significant milestones this year. It's 50 years since the formation of Voice of the Martyrs in Australia, when the organization's founder, Pastor Richard Wormbrand, visited Australia and sharing his story of persecution in communist Romania. Well, last year, a new Christian film called Tortured for Christ was released. And that film told the story of Pastor Richard Wormbrand, and it was screened in cities around the nation. Well, as part of the significant 50-year milestone, not just one, but three outstanding advocates of the persecuted church are here in Australia, sharing their testimonies of victory over persecution. All of them have been renowned international speakers. The three that will be joining us over this next hour, Bob Fu, who was one of the leading voices in the, who is one of the world's leading voices uh, for persecuted faith communities in China. There's also uh, going to be joining us Peter Yasek. Peter's a Czech missionary who was imprisoned in Sudan for 14 months and tortured by Islamic State extremists. And Dr. Daniel Shayester, who was a member of the Iranian Revolutionary Army in the 1970s, closely supporting the Ayatollah Khomeini in his overthrow of the Shah of Iran. Well, you can imagine these gentlemen all have the most amazing stories to tell. And I want to welcome first to the studio uh, Dr. Daniel Shayester. Daniel, special welcome along to 2020. It's it's so wonderful to be with you here. Uh, Daniel, it's almost uh, surreal to think that you were there, and mm-hmm. dating back to the 1970s, because all of the things that we're seeing in Iran today, the top-down, uh, theocratic Islamic government that oppresses the people, mm-hmm. that this started back in the late 1970s, and you were there. In fact, you were encouraging this to happen. Yes. Is it your fault? Do we blame you? Is it? Uh, I'm not taking this too lightly, but, uh, but you were there, a philosopher, and no doubt advising the top levels yeah. of the Islamic overthrow of the Shah of Iran. Take us back to a quick... Re- recount of those days. Yes, I I, can, I I blame myself actually for that. But unfortunately, the knowledge of philosophy I had, philosophy I had about was uh, you know about the philosophy of God, not about Islamic political philosophy and social philosophy. So I had a lot of ignorance about Islam. Unfortunately, Islam is a religion that mediation is so strong. You follow a leader. And uh, many times, absolutely. So I was 
blind, you know, uh, crying for political and social justice in Iran, but deceived by Ayatollah Khomeini and didn't know that Islam wouldn't be able to provide that justice for us and therefore fell into the trap absolutely myself and like many other young boys and girls in Iran and eventually our ignorance opened the door for absolute dictatorship now. When you reflect on this idea that young Islamic people have almost a utopian idea of what will happen uh, when the Islamic State takes over and there's this theocratic rule and everything will be wonderful, What's your reflection on the reality of what happens when there is a totalitarian theocratic government, as we've seen in Iran? Absolute ruin, destruction, you know, because it's not, it's not real. It doesn't match, you know, human need, human emotion and, uh, you know, the normal life. And, uh, you know, um, Unfortunately, some kind of, you know, similar problems in Western countries, you know, many people now are staying away from Christian culture, you know, simply because of Christianity. And uh, many people do not know that their forefathers, some, many of your forefathers were burned alive in the Western, you know, you know, countries square, in cities square because of their, you know, uh, a stand, a strong stand, uh, you know, behind freedom. And so ignorance causes damage everywhere, no matter in the Middle East and in the Western countries. But many Muslims really do not know that. And that's why we are trying hard now, you know, to take this message to people and and encourage them, please read, please compare, please listen, you know, and uh, to make a good decision. Listeners will be absolutely amazed that as we speak to you live in the studio today that you were a part of what happened to the overthrow of what was perhaps uh, a more free nation under the Shah of Iran. Mm. When you, in fact, were a part of the overthrow with the, uh, with the Revolutionary Guard, what was it that caused there to be a falling out between you and the Ayatollah Khomeini that caused you to need to flee Iran, and I think you went to Turkey. What was it that caused that falling out? Look, I mean, I was an educated person in the university, finished my, um, you know, bachelor in the university. I mean, we we read a lot of things about anthropology, human rights, you know, but the only deception really, um, um, you know, uh, we had in our life through our leaders was that, uh, you know, um, Islam cares for humanity like that. If we go to Islamic theocracy and people um, would have democracy, Ayatollah said to us, but then after taking over, country fell into the hands of Ayatollah. We saw no, it just Ayatollah deceived us. Ayatollah actually passed the resolution in the parliament for his absolute leadership. Nobody had right to criticize him. So that caused us, you know, uh, to fall apart from Ayatollah's movement and criticize him and eventually, you know, got a death sentence, even though we won the government, but he was the chief commander of the Revolutionary Army, wanted to kill the president who was one of my colleagues. President escaped, government was demolished. We got, you know, death sentence. Some were, were killed, but eventually by the 
by God's grace, even though I didn't know that God, but he had a plan for me. I was able, by the help of some people, to escape from, you know, Iran uh, to, you know, to Turkey. And uh, um, then a different story started uh, from in Turkey concerning Christ. Just briefly, how was it that you discovered Jesus Christ and the freedom that comes from being a believer? Three things really played very significant things in my life. Very quickly, I'm telling you. First was my doctorate in Turkey. The major of my doctorate was about cultures, religions, and philosophical beliefs like Confucianism, atheism, you know, humanism, and New Age. I had to compare this world's major religions and see in what way they impact uh, the life of their uh, followers, like leadership, like work ethic, you know, social values, family values, organizational values. And I was really, after my investigation, amazed, you know, about Christian values, discovering that Christianity is the only belief that individual freedom is sacred there. And it is it is actual fragile, you know, freedom, individual freedom is fragile in Christianity, and that's why the leadership must be modest and humble in order to be able to protect individual freedom. Otherwise, you cannot, you know, uh, um, protect individual freedom. That was the major thing in the university, just, uh, you know, um, blew me away, really. I never thought to find this in Christianity. And then I discovered because there is no freedom, individual freedom in all other religions and philosophies, because the leadership like in, uh, you know, socialism and atheism is random, and therefore you do not ask leaders, you do not expect leadership to be, you know, modest or, or hierarchy, because it's just natural, whatever comes is good, and in Islam is authoritarian, there's no freedom. So that was the first revelation for me in the university. The second thing, something happened to me. I went to a church. I heard their message about God. I found that God in the Bible is free also to criticism for question. You question God. Whereas in Islam, you cannot question even your father, even the leader of an organization. If you do to, you know, you lose your job. If you question your leader like I did in a friendly way, I questioned Ayatollah Khomeini, I got a death sentence. So no freedom there. And the third thing, you know, was a dream I saw. The following Sunday, I went to the church. I heard my dream from the pulpit. These three significant things, that dream, their teachings in the church about God, that God is a personal, you can have personal relationship with God. And my study in the university, all of them caused me to read the gospel myself. Gospel showed itself very amazing to me. So all of these dimensions came together and you became a believer in Christ. Yes. You then fled Iran. You were then, in some sense, exiled. You weren't allowed back. You haven't been back for 30 years. I'm sure you're not welcome back there today. Let me ask you, there are listeners today who would be toying with the idea, uh, giving some light to the idea that socialism, uh, even communism, might be an alternative way of being able to govern a nation. And there is a certain sense in which you've been there, done that, seen the way that worked. In fact, uh, communism was very close to 
the uh, Ayatollah and the Islamic regime uh, that began to rise. What do you say to people who might be toying with these ideas? Because as we are in Australia, people talk about us becoming a more secularised culture. In other words, a less godly culture and reliant on our own ways that we might see governance. What are your thoughts for people who would be thinking and toying with those ideas? You was, I, I was a lecturer in University of Technology years ago for eight years. I saw many young people love the freedom, but they never knew that Marx and Engels said freedom is poison. We just knew we just use it to destroy freedom and capitalism. They believe that freedom is a, is a, is a toy for capitalism. They do not know that. My thing is that these people do not know the reality. You need to be able to use your own freedom and autonomy. Autonomy doesn't make, individual autonomy doesn't make sense in socialism and communism and in Islam. Unfortunately, many people here are staying away from Christianity and believing that they are socialism, socialist or they are, you know, communist. They are just communist in the context of Christianity. I have said to them, the best communism in the world can be called North Korea or China. And uh, you see, there is no freedom there. But a communist in Australia, they say, yeah, we have to be free. No, mate. You're using Christian freedom here, and you're calling yourself communist. Communist, even in old Russia, Stalin killed millions of his own communist peers because they criticized. Criticism is not accepted in evolution and in communist doctrine. So I really beg these people to listen to me carefully. There is no any dynamic culture in the world like Christian culture. They really need to stick to Christian culture and discover their full identity in that and enjoy that identity, which will be an heavenly identity. Daniel, if we connect the democracy that we are under in Australia with Christian culture, which we often will refer to on this program, but on many other mainstream media outlets, people are trying to distance themselves from the Christian heritage that we have. What are your thoughts for how this freedom is expressed, perhaps best expressed, with an appreciation of Christian heritage? Philosophically, doctrinally, and logically, this freedom here is from Christianity. It cannot be from anything. So I am speaking here, a man who has studied for 30 years, my doctorate is about culture and religion and philosophies, you know. I know that, and that's why I'm encouraging Australia and all Western countries really to go into the depth of it and discover it and appreciate it. And unfortunately, I had chance even to speak to many politicians in Western societies, and I discovered they do not know this. The solution for us is to read and to read the Bible. They discovered that, that our freedom here in Western countries in Australia is from Judeo-Christian values. Well, this is the message that comes through the caliber of the people who are visiting Australia. These three guests that we'll have during this hour, 
and here because the 50th anniversary of Voice of the Martyrs. There are only a limited number of these Christian ministries that have the real opportunity to reach into some of the most difficult cultures where there is an oppression against Christianity. Voice of the Martyrs, a wonderful organisation. Daniel, your thoughts for the 50th anniversary, your visit to Australia. How important is it for people to support this organisation? You know, persecuted people, persecuted Christians are the good models to follow. And I have read about your forefathers' story. It touched my heart. It brought tears into my eyes. That's why I love Voice of the Martyr movement, because they are interested really to stand for the right of people. And in this process, they are also interested to reveal everything to people and to create a motivation among people and provoke people really to understand the chapters of each other's life. And that's why, really, I love, you know, uh, Voice of the Martyr that cares for people's freedom, for people's rights. Well, an absolute privilege to have you in our studio today, Dr. Daniel Shaista. I'll point people to some of your books, Understanding and Freedom. Detailed comparison between Islam and Christianity. There's a whole lot of other books that you've read too. And I know people, when they Google your name or go onto Amazon looking for your books or going onto the website of Voice of the Martyrs, vom.com.au, they'll be able to access some of your wonderful materials. Thank you so much for taking some time to share with our listeners today these thoughts. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Well, the most amazing privilege this hour to have three leading advocates for the persecuted church in Australia. And they are here because it is the 50th anniversary year of the formation of the Australian Office of Voice of the Martyrs. And the next guest I want to introduce you to, his name is Bob Fu. Bob is one of the leading voices in the world for persecuted faith communities in China. He is the founder of the organization called China Aid. Bob, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil, for having me. Bob, just this past week, we have seen the 30th anniversary of the Tiananmen Square protests. You were there. You were a student organizer at the Tiananmen Square protests. Take us back to those days, a lot of listeners will be familiar with some of the things that have been on our mainstream media. You were there. Take us back to your experience. Yes, Neil. Uh, it was exactly really 30 years ago in this month. Um, I organized uh, the protest with my um, the group of students in the Tiananmen Square. We were just calling for um, anti-corruption with more uh, democratic and, uh, and freedom a process um, in Chinese political system, and uh, we're really uh, yearning for good, or I mean, for better uh, in China. And unfortunately, of course, uh, on June 4th of 1989, the Chinese uh, Communist Party ordered the Chinese military had that uh, severe I mean, military massacre and crackdown with the hundreds, if not thousands, of lives were killed. When we hear that there is a cover-up from the Chinese government 
As to the numbers of people who were killed and wounded in the Tiananmen Square crackdown, what's your perception on the numbers that were not exposed to the world's media that was secretive under the Chinese government? Of course, nobody knows uh, exactly uh, how many were massacred uh, during that uh, time. But a very kind of a more reliable estimate uh, should be something like uh, 3,000 or so, uh, maybe more. Um, we, uh, at that time, at least, you know, the military uh, were ordered with a blank check so they can really um, shoot and kill uh, non-discriminately. And uh, so th- 30 years later, the Chinese Communist Party leaders are still denying there's a, anyone was killed during the massacre. So that is uh, according to one author's name, uh, author's uh, book of the People's Republic of uh, Amnesia. So for the past uh, 30 years, the Chinese Communist Party has been engaging this cover-up. None of the Chinese textbooks um, in the uh, from elementary to graduate school uh, is, e- is even mentioning that um, students' moment or massacre had ever happened. Bob, as you reflect on the past 30 years, clearly there's going to be a reflection on the rise of Christianity in China and now a crackdown on Christianity in China. Let's talk about the rise for a few moments because for a lot of listeners, it's staggering, mind-boggling, the numbers of Christian believers who've come to faith in Christ in that time. I wonder whether you've got a reflection on the growth of the underground church, the house church movement. I'm glad you asked that question because on the secular media, people rarely mention about the spiritual dimension out of that massacre. Yes, it was a, a tragic massacre, and, uh, you know, a, a, a tragic political um, uh, crackdown. And yet the uh, Lord has really, you know, been sovereign. And uh, out of that uh, tragic event, uh, really, there is uh, uh, perhaps the largest spiritual revival um, happened and still happening out of that massacre. I was regarded as the first generation of Tiananmen Christians. We called Tiananmen Christians. And before 1989, before the massacre, rarely there is any Chinese students, professors came to know the Lord. But after that, like Holy Spirit works like a fire, like like, uh, everywhere, every university, there are new believers. And um, and when Communist Party, I mean, took power, there was less than one million Christians, 1949, 70 years ago. And even in the uh, 1989, there was uh, more uh, Christians were like a a few millions are still in the countryside area. And But after that, there are millions and millions of Chinese uh, students, professors, public intellectuals, lawyers have come to Christ. And today, according to the most conservative estimate, the number of Chinese Christians already have reached to over 100 million. 
As I say, these sorts of figures are mind-boggling for us here in Australia where our total population is about 25 million. So when we think of 100 million Christian believers in China, uh, it is the most significant revival perhaps that we've seen in the history of the world. It is. And uh, to have you sitting in the studio with us as one of those Tiananmen uh, generation Christian leaders most of us don't actually think of what might spark revival as being, in some sense, this quest for freedom. I wonder whether you've got a reflection there, because the Chinese quest for freedom, those students in Tiananmen Square, and you say that supercharged revival from that point when there was a crackdown, suffering, persecution, this idea of freedom being a catalyst how do you see that? Yeah, I reflected like this. I mean, before 1989 massacre, we as students leader, that younger generation, were still thinking about how to rely on the existing political, you know, social system to uh, reform itself and to uh, get better on uh, the Chinese uh, institution, you know, reform. But after the massacre, really... Um, the um, Chinese younger generation um, had a total disappointment, uh, disillusionment, and um, then God found ours. And we, of course, also found God that uh, none of the human-made system is reliable and uh, freedom cannot be obtained by uh, begging, appealing to any political party or system. And um, God set us free uh, from our soul first, because uh, only the spirit, uh, the truth will set us free. So that's how God actually, uh, out of that tragic massacre, have this mobilized uh, 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 huge kind of spiritual revival and make us uh, over time generation feel we're liberated from soul, from the bondage of sin first, and finding Jesus and, you know, in our true freedom and from that foundation, we continue to fight for freedom, uh, other freedoms. Clearly, every Chinese person who's under communist totalitarian domination recognizes that their freedoms are inhibited. This idea of freedom in Christ, this is a liberating thing. How does that, how does that feel to the Chinese person when they are actually discovering freedom in Christ that is bigger than the freedoms that even would separate them from the oppression of Chinese communism? Honestly, you know, without the realization of the spiritual freedom in Christ, we, no matter how much freedom we were given or entrusted, political freedom, freedom of speech or assembly or freedom of association, you're still bonded because you know, look, all the political parties, they can maneuver whatever the ways, um, they cannot really obtain or the, the true freedom and joy, um, you know, until that spiritual freedom is realized. I remembered, uh, when I was, uh, about to accept Christ in, you know, uh, in my life, I was full of bitterness, full of, uh, hatred toward those, uh, even, you know, my betrayers, during the student's moment, and uh, I was, uh, you know, th seriously thinking uh, have a, a suicide, and uh, it was really after uh, I became a follower of Christ. It made me 
really convicted me that who am I could change the others without myself first changed? Who can change myself without my heart being transformed? Thank you, Neil. And I've got another guest, and I say we're overflowing with wonderful opportunity and guests that you would treasure to have a longer conversation with. Let me introduce you to Peter Yasik. Now, Peter is a Czech missionary who was imprisoned in Sudan for 14 months and tortured by Islamic State extremists. And, in fact, I think you were, uh, in fact, sentenced to life imprisonment uh, under that Sudanese regime. Peter, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you for your invitation. Peter, take us back to those days. What was it that caused you to be imprisoned in Sudan? What were you doing there with these Sudanese people, having the experience that you had coming out of your own homeland? You know, I had the great privilege to uh, work with the persecuted brothers and sisters for the last 25 years, and I have visited the country of Sudan uh, more than a dozen times when it was still one country, and uh, after the secession of the southern Sudan, we focus on this uh, northern Sudan, and I attended a uh, a Sudanese consultation conference in uh, October 2015 in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa, and I heard compelling stories of uh, persecution of uh, Christians as individuals as well as of the whole congregations. And I heard a uh, compelling story of young Muslim background believer student who was seriously burned. And I also heard about uh, the churches being demolished. So I, uh, you know, at that time was working already full time for the Voice of the Martyrs. And I uh, felt like I needed to uh, come to see, you know, to document the persecution. And I also decided to bring some help uh, for the medical treatment of this young guy. And that was the main reason why I came. And you were only supposed to be there four days to glean this information, to drop off those supplies. And you were accused by the regime of being a spy and waging war on the state. That must have been a pretty uh, horrendous and even frightening time for you. Yeah, it was. Uh, You know, I have experienced uh, uh, several times being stopped at the airport when I was leaving restricted countries. Sometimes they were going through all my stuff, you know. But uh, at this time, you know, when I got arrested, uh, they started to show me as an evidence that I was not just a tourist. Uh, They started to show me uh, pictures that were taken with night vision camera. So, I mean, I realized that it was really getting serious. And uh, I knew that this time it will be more difficult. And they, uh, of course, uh, confiscated my cell phones. I, I was not able to, to call my wife to say that uh, uh, I will not come. Uh, I will miss my flight. I was actually holding my boarding passes in my hand, uh, right, being arrested in the airport. And they uh, transferred me to the headquarters of the secret police where I, I was interrogated for nearly 24 hours. And, uh, you know, during these 24 hours, I wasn't answering uh, their question. I was just demanding to either to to be able to allow to talk to my family or to uh, the Czech embassy, but they didn't uh, allow me that. And uh, after that, you know, they started to fill a paper, and it was quite obvious that it won't be to any hotel, it will be to prison. And the question begs itself here, what is life like? in a Sudanese prison. We might have some impression of what it is in an Australian prison. What is life like in a Sudanese prison? 
you know, I have been for the first time in my life imprisoned, so in, in a foreign country, so it's very difficult. And even though the first prison already seems to be like horrendous, you know, it's, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, humidity, you know, um, there are some uh, crawling and flying animals, uh, you know, mold everywhere. Uh, you know, the food is, you know, you better, you, you can easily lose weight. And that was actually my case. I, in the first three and a half months, months I lost 25 kilos of my body weight. But I was also uh, put into the cell that normally is designed for one prisoner. And there were six other prisoners already. And uh, the next morning, you know, when I woke up, because I was put into the cell at 1.30 a.m., the next morning I realized that uh, I am among uh, six other members of Islamic State. You know, and they were very proud Muslims and they were treating me as a, you know, inferior, you know, as actually they made a slave of me. I was supposed to wash the dishes. I was supposed to even uh, wash their underwear. And later on, when they tried to humiliate me, they also uh, commanded me to wash the toilet with my bare hands. So, and apart from that, you know, they uh, at first started to slander my name, you know, verbally uh, attacking me. But then, uh, you know, the verbal attacks became physical attacks, being beaten and being tortured by them and they were never actually satisfied at the same time I'm weak you know physically I'm weak emotionally especially when you suffer with anemia you know you're you're uh, being depressed you know you were not able to remember certain things that you memorized even the scripture passages that I memorized when I was young and I was praying I was asking the Lord you know because I was not allowed normally to speak I was only allowed to speak when I was asked a question so my only opportunity to share the gospel with my uh, ISIS members, uh, fellow prisoners, was when I was asked. And of course, they were asking me about my Christian faith. They were so proud of their Muslim faith. So that was my opportunity. But I can tell you that uh, I have experienced exactly the words that uh, Apostle Paul says in Second Corinthians 12.10. And he says, when I am weak, then I am strong. In my uh, physical and emotional weakness, I was sharing in the Lord's strength the gospel with these guys. And sometimes they became completely silent because they didn't have anything to say. But at the same time, they were very much irritated by my uh, words of the gospel. And not only I was able to share the gospel with my words, but also with my attitude, you know, was just turning my other cheek to them when they were beating me. And that actually made them more and more furious. And at the same time, I had the feeling, you know, you were amidst the six other guys who were uh, five times per day praying uh, their uh, Muslim prayers. And not only that, you know, there were three, four printouts of Korans in each cell. So um, when Muslims read Koran, they are doing the power reading or they are singing Koran. So I became to the, you know, uh, rather in the first uh, two months uh, worried, uh, not that I will die in this prison, but that I will first lose my mind, a sound mind. And I was asking the Lord to give me you know, the privilege to keep my mind sound. And the Lord started to, uh, through the Holy Spirit, reveal portions of passages of Scripture that I really needed to hear at that time. When I was worried about my mental health, the Lord reminded me the verse from Philippians 4-7, when the Lord says, uh, Paul says, is talking about the supernatural peace that is actually surpassing all human understanding. And he says that this peace will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. And, you know, I was... 
uh, so um, coveting the prayers of others. You know, I, I was actually convicted by the Holy Spirit how many times I told someone who asked me for prayers and for help, and I said, I will keep you in my prayers. But I have realized that this became just in my case, the social Christian phrase to tell someone that I will keep in my prayers. But I was so uh, needing the prayers, you know, and I was, um, you know, being amongst these enemies of the gospel uh, that I never knew from which side I will be hit or kicked with their legs, you know, or slapped my face. Uh, when 9 p.m. came, I was, uh, you know, allowed to fall asleep in this noisy cell, you know, in the midst of my enemies. And I was wondering why. Four months later, you know, I started to receive letters from my family, and I uh, heard, you know, through from my family through the coded language that about at uh, 8 uh, p.m. at my home time in Czech Republic, you know, which was exactly actually 9 p.m. in Sudan, everyone's cell phones in our church started to ring with reminder prayers for Peter. And, you know, when people were praying for me from 9 p.m. till 10 p.m. Sudanese time, I could fall asleep amidst my enemies without any problems. And that was just a physical evidence, you know, of uh, prayers of uh, faithful Christians from my own church. And uh, that's why, you know, I when I was in prison, you know, sometimes I had this kind of uh, uh, feeling being uh, pity for myself. You know, I missed my first, first time in my life, uh, my family's life. I missed Christmas, you know, in 2015, and I was feeling sorry, you know, and then, uh, you know, the Lord uh, uh, kept uh, reminding me, you know, other persecuted believers, you know, I have, uh, my wife and I, we traveled once to Eritrea, where we met uh, courageous Eritrean pastors who have been later on imprisoned, and when I was in prison, these people were already 12 and 13 years in prison. And I, suddenly, you know, I started to realize that I'm feeling pity for myself. But these people are already spending years in prison. So I started systematically to pray for those people as well. Prayer is very powerful. I can't help but reflect that many in Australia uh, have difficulty even taking the opportunity that we have, this free opportunity we have to be able to share our faith with people who might be our work colleagues, people that we might come across at the supermarkets. And when we hear your story of being imprisoned in a Sudanese prison, and apart from that being such a dreadful circumstance, you're in a cell with six Islamic prisoners who treat you like a slave, and you experience in that opportunity to be able to share your faith with them. Let me ask you this, Peter, when there was a breakthrough and you began to be heard and not just silenced as one who was uh, subordinate uh, under the feet of those Islamic prisoners, what is it like when there is a breakthrough and one of those opens their heart to become a believer in Christ? You know, it has happened actually uh, exactly four months and one day when I was in prison. I was already transferred to a different prison, 
And I was very, uh, you know, disappointed. I thought that I'm going to be released. You know, they actually played a game with me, giving me my carry-on luggage for the first time. I was able to put the best clothes on me and use deodorant and toilet paper after four months. And thinking that I'm going to the airport, they just transferred me to the different prison that uh, where the conditions were even worse. And um, so being depressed by that, you know, and being in a room maybe about only 25 square meters uh, locked up with uh, sometimes more than 40 people, but there was no toilet corner, no bucket. We had to wait patiently, only being re- allowed to go to the toilet one time in the morning and one time in the evening. And in these even uh, more horrible conditions, you know, uh, when we were already 35 people maybe in the cell, they brought another 12 uh, Eritrean refugees who have been uh, caught on the Sudanese-Libyan border on their attempt to go to Europe. And here I am in one corner and they are squeezed in the opposite corner. And I was led by the Holy Spirit clearly, you know, telling me, you know, go sit beside them and share the gospel with them. So, you know, I gladly uh, follow this uh, guidance of the Holy Spirit, and they were very gladly listening to me. Of course, they saw me as a, their potential future help when they will eventually make it, and they will make it one day, you know, across this border. Uh, they will come to Europe. Maybe they can have my email address. Maybe I can help them somehow. So they were gladly listening to the gospel that I was sharing with them. And that was a wonderful opportunity. You know, I shared the gospel. I shared my personal testimony with them. And then I led them to, you know, to commit their lives uh, to Christ as well. And through two of them who spoke very good English as interpreters, you know, all 12 of them bowed their heads and prayed with me that night. We could not sleep at all because there was no place to sleep. But we didn't mind because we were so joyful and they were asking me more questions. And uh, we will be, uh, you know, we were so rejoicing and they were about their new face. And next morning, imagine the fact that next morning, you know, all 12 of uh, them were called by names and they were transferred to a different prison. And I didn't see them anymore. But for me, that was the eye-opening moment in my prison time. Suddenly, I started to realize there is a purpose. Lord has a purpose for me to share the gospel. And I started to view my four months, you know, like nothing compared to, you know, the eternity of someone who heard the gospel in prison and may spend his whole eternal life with Jesus Christ. And I started to be more active in sharing the gospel in uh, with other even Muslim prisoners in that Well, cell. in hearing your story, uh, listeners will be in no doubt why you these days uh, travel the world and you share your story and you encourage people to be supporters of the persecuted church, of Christian believers who are being imprisoned, uh, falsely imprisoned under all sorts of trumped-up charges. And they find themselves into torturous situations where they are, in fact, sharing cells uh, with other Islamic prisoners. And uh, this is the sort of support and prayer that is needed to uphold those believers. We have run out of time. But I want to thank you so much, Peter, for sharing with us. You're in Australia because you're a part of what's happening this weekend. Tomorrow night, a dinner on in Brisbane, celebrating 50 years of the Voice of the Martyrs organization. You're a global ambassador for Voice of the Martyrs. Uh, Just quickly, very quickly, your encouragement for people to support Voice of the Martyrs and the good work that's going on around the world. 
I would say that the most important thing is that we start to pray for our uh, dear uh, persecuted brothers and sisters. And I'm sure that when we will spend our intimate time with the Lord Jesus, that he will show us what else we could do in a practical way to help our dear brothers and sisters. You know, Paul says that uh, when one part of the body suffers, the whole body is feeling the pain. I think our role as a voice of the martyrs is to uh, raise awareness of this uh, of this uh, uh, persecuted brothers and sisters and to maybe even to cause uh, these uh, free Christians living in the free world to feel a little bit of this pain of our dear brothers and i believe when they st- when you will start praying for those uh, brothers and sisters the lord will show you what else can uh, you do uh, for them and to help them uh, to help them be the frontline workers to help uh, to share the gospel uh, also with the persecutors in those countries. And that's uh, what I believe is the main purpose of us Christians being persecuted and having this opportunity to share the witness even amongst the persecution. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for sharing your thoughts here today. And uh, I can't help to to be able to draw all the loose ends together from the three guests that we have had in the studio with us. Uh, Dr. Daniel Shiesta was with us earlier. Bob Fu was with us earlier. And now Peter Yasek has been with us. Let me encourage people who might be in the southeast Queensland area that on the weekend, this Sunday, the 16th of June, you can see all three of these speakers that we've featured over this past hour speaking at the New Hope Church in Kelvin Grove in Brisbane. And then that's at 9.30am at New Hope Church, Kelvin Grove. Then 6pm at the Flame Tree Church in Nambour, where you'll be able to meet Bob Fu and Daniel Shiesta. Uh, what a wonderful privilege and opportunity that is. And I want to remind listeners, you can support Voice of the Martyrs. Simply go to the website, vom dot com dot au voice of the martyrs vom dot com dot au peter thank you so much for sharing these things with us today on 2020 thank you neil before you go thanks for listening there's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au and remember vision is listener supported your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.